Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Welcome. I'd like to make the outrageous claim that has a little bit of truth. All of this things that's happening now with the computer, the digitalization of our society of, uh, of information, you could say in a way is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert at the beginning of the century. It's not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the banks solvent, not to produce more and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to their leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. Round up the chorus so they all sing praises to your leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. And that's the historic task of intellectuals. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 2nd of June, 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today we will be speaking to Ben Dyson of the monetary reform campaigners Positive Money about taking the power of money creation away from the banks and putting it under democratic control. We will also talk about the nature of money, the origins of the current debt-based system and what we could look forward to in a world where the economy is planned according to the needs of the citizens and not just the short-term speculative libido of the banksters. The heterodox economic school, Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT, will also get a mention, and I will have more to say about it at the end of the interview. But first, the boring stuff. On the podcast website, you can sign up to receive email notifications for the latest uploads. I've also finally managed, after great difficulty, to get the show up on iTunes. I've attached a link to the iTunes page in the show notes, so you can send it on to all and sundry. The From Alpha to Omega Facebook group is expanding like an infected wound with a massive 26 likes. And if you would like to offer monetary assistance to keep the show afloat, you can click the donate buttons on the podcast website. This week's show is sponsored by my good friend Paul B, who alerted me to an error in the Disproving Darwin episode, where in one of the questions I said, in biology there is a fitness measure used to create new species or the mutations in the species. I should have said something like, in biology there is a fitness measure which determines which mutations survive or not, and therefore influences the creation of new species. Mia culpa. Sometimes my mouth operates independent of my brain, and other times my brain barely operates at all. Thanks for your thoughts on the show, Paul, and thanks for the generous donation of monetary units. Speaking of monetary units, let's get to the interview. Ben Dyson has spent the last five years figuring out what's wrong with the financial system. He works for the UK monetary reform campaigners positivemoney.org trying to promote a better understanding of the issues of debt-based money with MPs, think tanks, charities, academics and unions. 
positive money believe this debt-based system of ours is a root cause of many of our problems, from poverty and inequality to increasing indebtedness and environmental breakdown. I first became very interested in economics after the devastation that happened in Ireland post-2007. One key question that I realised that I had no understanding of whatsoever, what exactly is money? Well, <laughs> that's a big question. I mean, economists spend ages arguing about this and trying to define it. Like, I like to keep it simple. I, from my view, if you can walk into your corner shop and buy a pint of milk and a newspaper with it, then it's money. Economists will give you all these different complex definitions about being a store of value and a means of exchange and a, a unit of measure. For most people, money is either two things. It's either physical cash, it's that stuff that you carry around in your wallet, or it's those numbers in your bank account. And um, those numbers in the bank account are not quite as most people imagine them to be. There's, there's two sources, really. The cash, the £10 notes and the coins that we use every day, as it says on every single banknote, it comes from the Bank of England. And you know, most of us know that if you, if you print your own money at home, you get the police coming through the door the very next day to, to have a stern word with you. Most people assume that those numbers in your bank account, when you go to the ATM to check your balance, they assume that those numbers represent some kind of pile of physical cash that's been kept in the bank. Now, what is usually a shock to people is the fact that those numbers in your bank account were actually created essentially out of nothing by the banks themselves. So the way this works is those numbers in your account, in, in a legal sense, are not actually considered to be money. What they're considered to be is the bank's liability to you. So without going too much into the accounting, it's basically a record that the bank promises to pay you the money that you think you have in that account. And that might be that it pays you in cash or it might make an electronic payment to another bank on your behalf. Now, these numbers aren't legally defined as money. They can actually just be created out of nothing. And the bank can just increase the balance of your account. Now, obviously, it's not going to increase the balance of your account uh, free. What it does is it increases the balance of your account when you take out a loan. So the vast majority of money in the system now, all this electronic money, was created by banks when they made loans. So this is credit money? Yeah, it's often called credit money. So what percentage of money is credit money in the UK at the moment? It's about 97%. 97% of all money is created by, by banks when they make loans. And just that 3%, which is cash, is actually created by the state. So to get this straight, I want to buy a house for £100,000. I go into a bank and I say, can I have £100,000, please? They don't have £100,000 sitting in a vault that they give to me. They basically type on a computer, put it into my account. That's on one side of the balance sheet. And on the other side of the balance sheet is... Tom now owes me a hundred grand at a certain percent over a certain amount of time. And in essence, that money is created in exchange for a percentage of my future labor. Yeah, that's it. I mean, a bank's balance sheet, if you look into accounting, it seems complicated, but it's actually quite simple. A bank's balance sheet is like if you take a notepad, draw a line down the middle. On one side, you say, this is what I owe to other people. And on the other side, you say, this is what I own. And what they do when they make a loan is they create an account for you and then they write, say, 100000 in there if you want to buy a house. 
Um, and that goes on the side of what the bank owes, what it owes to other people. So it says that actually it owes you 100000 And then when you sign that contract to say you're borrowing this money from the bank, they then take that contract. Nowadays, it's probably electronic, but they put it on the other side of their little notepad on the side which says, what, does, what do we own? The side that says what we own is the assets. The other side is the liabilities. And they can basically create money by increasing their liabilities by putting the numbers into your account at the same time as they increase their assets with the loan contract that says that you promise to repay all that money. Can you talk about the redistributive mechanism of the power of money creation? The thing you have to remember is that because the vast majority of money is created and lent, for every £100 in your account, somebody somewhere else really has £100 of debt. And they're going to be paying interest on that debt, which means you have this constant redistribution from all the people who end up with the debt to the small percentage of people who actually end up with significant wealth or money. And when we've, we've taken data from sort of household surveys, and what you find is that actually money is being redistributed from the bottom 90% of the population to the top 10%. And this is constant, this is ongoing, it's basically paying interest on all the money that exists. That effect is quite probably significant enough to cancel out all of the progressive tax, potentially a lot of the welfare spending that is designed to sort of take money from the top and bring it back down to the bottom. When you have a monetary system that's taking money from the bottom, bring it back, back, back to the, the top. top. Yeah. So banks create this credit under fractional reserve lending. How long has that been around and what's the origins of that? It's a system that's been around for hundreds of years. It developed over time. This is one of the things about the system. It's never been designed. There's no sort of intelligent design behind this. It's just grown over the years. What some of the historians will tell you and you know, history is always slightly in dispute. So if you go back a few hundred years, money obviously wasn't electronic. It wasn't also typically paper. It used to be metal coins that would be stamped with the head of the king. And people would use this, uh, these metal coins as, as money for most of their transactions. Now, same thing with cash. Most people don't like to hold large amounts of cash. And most people don't want to hold large amounts of metal coins in case you get mugged or you lose them. So they put them with somebody for safekeeping. And typically, people would decide that the goldsmiths who were creating jewellery using gold and other precious materials, you know, they had storage vaults where they could keep things safe and they had security people to make sure that nobody else could break in. So what they'd do is they'd go to the goldsmith and say, look, can I keep some money in your vault? And the goldsmith would say, yeah, certainly. So he'd, he'd write out a piece of paper saying, you've put this much metal coins into the vault. And that piece of paper then would be the goldsmith's promise to repay that money. What happened over time is that more and more people started to put their money into the, the goldsmith's vault. He started to realise, you know, this is, could be quite a profitable business. In fact, it actually became more interesting to him than, than producing jewellery. And so, you know, you've got this piece of paper that says you have this money in the bank and you want to buy something on the high street. So rather than actually going down to the bank, handing in your piece of paper, taking out the money, taking it down the high street, spending it, and then the shopkeeper has to then take it straight back to the bank because he wants to keep it safe. What you'd actually do is just give the, the shopkeeper the piece of paper and it'll say, okay, so, you know, here's five pounds with the money stored in the bank down at the end of the street. And the shopkeeper would trust that piece of paper, he'd trust the bank, um, and then just start using that to pay other people as well. So these, these paper receipts became, effectively, they became money. They were used as money, and from that point on, 
as the banks realised, you know, actually we can print these pieces of paper and people will accept them as though they're real money. So then they started printing more and more and then they started lending these pieces of paper out as well to collect interest on, on these loans. And eventually that whole system got out of control because the more that the, the banks printed, sorry, the goldsmiths printed these pieces of paper, the more they could lend, the more interest they collect and the more profit they would make. Um, so they had that incentive to just basically take this to an extreme. And around the 1840s, this, this whole system went a bit too far. So the government of the day stepped in then and said, well, we're going to have to prevent this from happening again. So what we'll do is we'll change the law so that from this point on, only the Bank of England can create money. They did that in 1844. It was a conservative government of the day. But the problem was they, you know, obviously in 1844, didn't foresee the whole rise of electronic payments and uh, your debit card and your internet banking. So they never updated that law to account for the electronic money. And now electronic money makes up 97% of the entire money supply in the UK. And the vast majority of that money was created by the banks. Even, say, in the, in the 50s or the 60s, 80% of the money was bank credit money. So it depends which figures you get, but the figures that we use is a historical study that was recommended to us by the Bank of England, yeah. going back to 1870. And what that actually says is that even in 1870, the ratio was 80% bank-issued money to 20% state-issued money. I mean, if you see the chart of money supply in 1971, it starts to grow massively. But actually, that ratio is only, in that time, it's fallen from 20% of the money supply being state-issued to just 3%. And actually now it's, I think it's below 3% on the latest figures. So we always had kind of state money and credit money. But since the dawn of electronic money, it's essentially much easier to create credit money. Well, yeah, you always had I mean, what, what people will call credit money, the sort of accounting liabilities. Yeah. You know, in the old days, they were literally handwritten in the ledger book. And then, you know, as, as things develop, you get your little passbook where they, again, they handwrite it in. With the sort of rise of electronic means of payment, it became more convenient to use this, I mean, say, starting with checks. A check was an instruction to transfer money from one account to another. And it meant you didn't actually have to physically carry the money. So it's a lot easier for a bank to just reduce the balance of your account and increase somebody else's balance. When people start to use checks more, that meant it was easier for the banks to reduce the amount of cash that they needed as a percentage. And then when you've got debit cards and electronic fund transfers. And now, actually, although cash is still in use for about half of all transactions, when you actually look at the value of those transactions, cash makes up less than 1% of the value of all different payments. So it, it's such a tiny thing. I mean, it, this, um, it might sound counterintuitive, but if you think about it, you use cash to buy your milk, your newspaper, those like sort of small things. Anything over about £30, most people will put on a card. And if you imagine like one house purchase can be equivalent to half a million pints of milk. That's um, a lot of milk. Yeah. So electronic money now is, is the predominant form of money. And the less significant cash becomes, the more electronic money becomes as a percentage of the economy. Gold and silver Burned my autumns All too soon they'd fade and die And then There were no others Milk and honey 
Can you tell me about the history of the central bank in England? The central bank in the UK was set up in 1694, and it was, I believe it or not, actually set up to help the king finance a war. Over time, it sort of got an increasingly important role in sort of providing services to all the other banks. So it was, um, I mean, the, the clues in the name, the Bank of England that would be there as sort of a support service and also an emergency lender for all the other smaller banks. A hundred years ago, you had many, many more small banks. You didn't have the big sort of Lloyds, HBOS, RBS. You'd have hundreds or thousands of small local regional banks. Shortly after the Second World War, I think it was in 1946 or 1948, um, the Bank of England was nationalised. Prior to that, it was privately owned. Yeah, that's correct. So they would create money for the state, private financiers would create money for the state and then charge state interest. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting arrangement and it's curious that politicians never questioned it before. But the Bank of England was nationalised in 1948, I think it was. Um, and then from that point on, it's sort of taken on this role of, um, it, has, it has a number of functions. It produces the cash, the actual physical money. It tries to manage interest rates. You could argue about how successfully they do that. It also provides payment services to the banks themselves. So each of the big banks has an account at the Bank of England where they, they use to sort of settle all their transactions. They also control managing the inflation rate for the economy. In theory, they do. So the question here is, what types of inflation do they control? Because we've seen house prices jump by two, 300%. The Bank of England was given responsibility for managing inflation. And the the measure of inflation that they were told to target is uh, CPI inflation, which is basically, it's sort of a basket of, you know, the average things that the average person buys, but it excludes house prices, um, or actually the, the cost of renting or paying interest on a mortgage. Now, for most people, housing is going to be the most expensive thing you ever you ever buy. It makes up a good sort of 20 to 30-odd percent of people's income. So to exclude that from the measure of inflation seems a little bit bizarre. Inflation happens where newly created money goes first. So if, with the current system, when banks create new money by lending, they tend to put most of that new money into property. And therefore, that's where you find the inflation. You don't find the inflation in, like, again, your milk or the things in your local corner shop. Although, you know, we have seen prices go up there. But where the real inflation happens is where the money lands first, which is in property. So what happened is the Bank of England and Mervyn King have been able to say, well, actually, we've successfully managed inflation. We've done our job well because the measure of inflation wasn't including house prices. So they they kept it within that sort of 2% target. If you factor in house prices, house prices were going up by up to 20% a year. So you had absolutely massive house price inflation. And actually, you know, house price inflation is far more damaging to people and their sort of quality of life than than many other types of inflation because it's the biggest percentage of your cost of living, essentially. Can you talk to me about the nature of the power to create money and how it can direct society? Yeah, well, if you think about money, there's, for most of us, there's a few ways we can get that. You know, you can work for it, you can beg for it, you can steal it, or you can borrow it. If you have money, you can get people to do stuff. If you have enough, you can pay somebody to kill somebody else. And it basically means that money is power. It's power to get other people to do things. So if you have the power to create money, then that's, that's possibly one of the biggest powers you could possibly have. For that reason, we should be really concerned with who actually has that power how they use it, and how we hold them accountable. 
So if you look at the current system, we have, it's the banks that create money, the banks that decide how much they create, and on that subject, they have an incentive to always create too much because the more that they create, the more profit they make. And then where do they use it? Well, they use it wherever they see the greatest short-term profit. So typically, the money they create goes into property and into speculation and investing in the stock market. Only about 10% of all the money that they create and lend goes to business, goes to the actual sort of productive economy that employs half of all the workers in the UK. So 90% goes to commodity price speculation, house price speculation. Yeah. It's really... Pretty well, astonishing. Well, this is incredible because whenever you hear the lobbyists talking about, okay, so the government says, well, we're thinking about doing this regulation. The lobbyists say, well, if you do that, that's going to harm our ability to lend, which is going to harm uh, the recovery because uh, we won't be able to get as much money to businesses. But actually, by that measure, you could cut out up to 90% of bank lending if you cut out the right stuff. If you kept the lending to business, the economy wouldn't suffer. So much of their lending is not actually adding any value to the economy. It's essentially parasitic. So this lending, which has blown up property prices, it seems like that they're extremely afraid of the property prices falling back down and they want to keep this artificial bubble inflated, even if it parasites the entire economy. Yeah, I mean, the reason for that is that when a bank makes a loan, it records the actual, the contract that you sign where you promise to repay, that becomes an asset on the balance sheet. Now, if those assets start going bad, So, for example, you say, I'm not going to pay for this mortgage anymore. I'm just leaving the building. If those assets go bad, it leaves a a hole in the balance sheet. I mean, effectively, they disappear. And if your assets start shrinking beyond a certain extent, beyond the point where they meet your liabilities, then eventually you go bust. So then it's game over for the bank. I mean, they, they don't want them to fall because if they fall, then people might say, well, okay, I'm in negative equity. If I sell the house now, it'll be 150,000. I paid 200,000 for it. I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to declare bankruptcy and just leave it. And if that happens, all those assets will disappear and the banks will go down again. And then we'll be asked to bail them out again. So we have to keep this bubble artificially inflated such that to keep the banks alive. Yeah. And if we don't keep the house prices artificially inflated, our banks are essentially dead. Yeah. Zombie yeah. banks like in, in Japan for 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Egypt, you had the pyramids, and if you walked around England 500 years ago, you had the castles. But nowadays, you walk around and you see the highest buildings nearly in every major 
centre in the world are Canary Wharf yeah. or Wall Street. We see like a direct link here between the height of a building and the power associated with that building. And today that largest power seems to be related to the power of money creation. Yeah. Why has this never been a core part of political discourse of any of the real major parties? Because, quite simply, they don't understand it. You think they don't understand it? Genuinely, we have had, either ourselves or supporters or contacts have had many discussions with people at sort of fairly senior levels, both in the government and the sort of shadow government, and they don't understand it. I mean, what you've got to remember about MPs is that most of them are ordinary people that have come from a wide range of backgrounds. Most of them have no sort of formal training in... Well, I say they have no formal training in economics, but actually that wouldn't help because they don't teach this stuff in economics courses. But, you know, they, they don't have the level of expertise or... It's not something that many people are familiar with. I mean, you'll even find economists who deny the fact that banks are able to create money. When I've read a, a number of different schools of economics myself, taught myself some of these different types of it, and it's truly astonishing that... Money is not part of what's called neoclassical economics. They ignore completely money creation. Paul Krugman denies that banks can even create money out of thin air, even yeah. though there is empirical research available. It seems like this is some kind of systemic conspiracy. Well, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, Paul Krugman, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, he, he actually said in this um, on the New York Times, he was having this debate with a very good economist, uh, Steve Keane, who actually does understand this. Paul Krugman said, well, Steve suggests that we need to include money and banking in the economic models that we have. I'm all in favour of including banks into the model where it adds something to the story. But how are banks relevant to a story about debt and leverage? The, the statement like that, that banks would have nothing to do with this whole crisis about debt and leverage, it's, it's surreal that you can actually say something like that and not realise what you're saying. Like every non-economist that I've said that to is astounded, because even they can see that there's obviously something wrong with that statement. Many economists don't fully understand this. The ones that do were taught a model of banking that went out of date 30 years ago. The book, Where Does Money Come From?, which is published by the New Economics Foundation, which is actually the only really accurate guide to how this system works in the UK. That book has a foreword by a guy called Professor Charles Goodhart. Uh, he's been an advisor to the Bank of England for years. He's been saying since about the 1980s that what they're teaching in the textbooks is completely inaccurate and doesn't actually bear any relation to how banks and central banks really work. But they're still teaching the same thing. The books are no more up-to-date. But how can they continue to teach stuff that is both theoretically inconsistent and incorrect and empirically proven to be not the case? There's a couple of answers. One aspect of it is that in order for us to do the research for this book, Where Does Money Come From? We spent a colleague of mine at Positive Money and Josh Ryan Collins at the New Economics Foundation spent a total of four months each researching through numerous different papers from the Bank of England to piece together exactly how the system works. Now, most economists and most academics will never get the funding or the time to spend eight months of full-time work doing a piece of research to figure out how the system works. And they actually needed to have that understanding of how the system works before they could really build any further academic work on you know, thinking about the implications. So that's been a big barrier to economists actually updating their knowledge. We've put together the book now, so there's no excuse for that anymore. You can read it in a couple of days. But the other aspect of it is that economists tend not to 
I don't want to tar everybody with the same brush because there are some really brilliant exceptions. But a lot of economists tend to, instead of going out there into the real world and trying to find out how it actually works, they start with a theory. And then they build another theory on top of that. And then they make assumptions on top of that. And Steve, Professor Steve Keen, in the book Debunking Economics, explains this in, in sort of brilliant detail, just how ridiculous some of the theories are. And without going into the mechanics of it, some of these theories that neoclassical economists are using to advise governments, when you actually look back at the underlying basis for them, they assume that there's actually only one person in the economy and there's actually only one thing that they can possibly buy. And as soon as you apply it to the real world, the whole theory falls down, which is partly why we've had the crisis that we've had. It's because the people who think they understand the economy have never really sort of lived in the real world. The originator of modern economics, Stanley Jevons, an English economist in the 1870s, he advocated a monetary worldview where privately owned banks created the money power and held the nation in its hands. To me, that's kind of indicative of how the, the monetary element is known and hidden in Keynes' general theory of employment and money. Yeah. He was aware of the nature of money. Like yeah. The greats are aware of it. It seems truly astonishing that it's then excised from the history. Well, we were, we were speaking to um, Professor Victoria Czech at UCL the other day, and she actually... What she told us that this was better known 30 years ago. There was a better understanding in academia of how banks actually operate than there is now. It's kind of fallen from the academic consciousness. Even though you've got the internet and the crisis and that this information is more readily available, economists are getting further and further away from actually understanding how it really works. But yeah, I mean, going back to Jevons's comment, that's the situation that we have today is money is created by banks. They decide how much of it to create and where it goes. That means that the entire economy is dependent on the decisions of those banks for its own well-being. And it's, it's guaranteed that those banks will not take the best decisions for the economy because the overriding incentive is profit. And the more they lend, the more they profit. And you can see this in the crisis. After they'd lent to all this sort of good risk, people who could actually afford to repay the loans, they then moved on to creating new financial assets to get people to buy these and also lending to people who had, you know, the ninja mortgages, no income, no job or assets. And it was just a, you know, it's an ongoing race of once you've lent to all the good people, then lend to the people who are sort of higher risk and then eventually lend to the people who will never repay anyway because you get your bonus and your commission for making that loan. You can't expect a system that runs on this basis to do what is in the best interest of the economy. First entry for Psychology 101 dysfunctional yeah don't you bring me nothing stupid if you don't want me to lose it step back if you don't want me to attack i'm a beast better give me the deuces i have no tolerance for nonsense get away from me me i want to get dollars don't want to holler but you making me i'm a little dysfunctional you the problem please don't awaken me and i'm that way because back in the day most have forsaken me Lottie dotty i'm at the party on a drunk night with a punk might do is try to pick a fight because he's sorry that he ain't gaudy like i because he sloppy not me cause Rocks be spot free, but he don't know I'm bogus. Surrounded by my soldiers, and they be locked and loaded. When exploded, you can't hold us, and we don't got no scruples. We didn't come to fight and shoot you, but your busters better be neutral. Don't get loose because we cuckoo. Listen, think they the meanest, but I brung the fall on the floor. A little bit sick, don't you know? I'm a little dysfunctional, don't you know? What could 
we spend this new decreated money on? Give me a vision for what a society where the money is in democratic control would look like. Yeah, so you've got a range of options. Say if we were to take this power to create money away from the banks, bring it back to state control. One thing I've got to emphasise is you don't really want to give this to politicians, to people like George Osborne or Gordon Brown, because they'll have the same incentives to abuse this power to create money as any sort of bank as well. But if we can find some sort of democratic way of having this money created in the public interest, then you've got a range of options for how that could be spent. So it could fund public services. It could be distributed to people through a tax cut. So you could actually just say we could take the lowest 20% of the population out of tax completely. You could even divide it up between every single person of adult age um, and just say, well, here's your £1,000 share of newly created money this year. And then it would be up to people to spend it either wisely or recklessly, but it's it's their choice and their responsibility. Then, you know, there's the other things. We've got this, this huge energy crisis that's impending, and we do need to invest a lot of money in switching to more sustainable forms of energy. So we could be thinking about doing that as well. So literally, the Treasury, for example, wants to build 15 new thorium nuclear power plants and 5,000 wind farms. They print up the money and they build them. Well, you've got to be careful to not give them free reign to just print money for all their sort of objectives. So in essence, you want some kind of independent technocratic way of measuring the amount of money that a society needs to meet its priorities and to control inflation and things like that. Yeah. And that's the thing. If this newly created money is feeding through into inflation, then you should stop. So those skills currently exist in the central bank, for example, they control all the inflation, not the house price inflation or or some of the aspects which they don't cover, but that technical job of controlling the amount of money to control inflation in certain fields is essentially known. To an extent it is. I'm I'm not entirely sure how much of the the Monetary Policy Committee, that's the guys who make decisions about interest rates, I'm not sure what percentage of them fully understand that banks create money. Because I I have it on good authority that one of them doesn't believe they do, even though there are countless Bank of England papers confirming that banks do create money. I mean, part of the problem the MPC has at the moment, the Monetary Policy Committee, is they are trying to... I mean, let me just sort of paint the picture. They, they change the interest rates at which banks can borrow from the central bank. Now, the idea is that this is eventually going to feed through to the interest rates that you know ordinary people have to borrow. Say there's a crisis which was caused by too much debt a few years ago. And their immediate response to that was, well, okay, we need to get banks lending more. So we need to make it cheaper for people to get into debt so that the banks will lend more and create more money to stimulate the economy. So... Your crisis was caused by people having too much debt. And their answer, supposedly, is to lower interest rates to encourage people to go further into debt. And the reason for that, I mean, it it sounds unbelievable, but the reason why that is is because in the current system, they've given this power to create money to the banking sector. They're now completely dependent on the banks to lend, to put any money into the economy. And if the banks refuse to do that, we're, we're screwed, basically. So they could do a much better job if they were actually directly, instead of manipulating interest rates, they could actually directly manage the money supply by either increasing it slightly or decreasing it slightly. So they say we have 2 trillion now, we need 2.05 trillion or we need 1.3 trillion pounds at the moment to work and have full employment and everybody happy. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the difference is sort of month to month and year to year wouldn't be huge. When you start talking about the state, 
taking back power to create money. The common response from a lot of people is, well, isn't that what Zimbabwe did? Or isn't it what they did in Germany in the 1920s, 1930s? The reality is that if you think about what we have right now, where you have the banks creating money, the more money they create by lending, the more profit they get. So they have a completely one-sided incentive to, to create more and more and more. And the result of that is that over the last 40 years, the money supply has increased by an average of 11.5% a year. What was the average economic growth during that period? Uh, significantly less. Like 3% or? Uh, probably below 3%. I'm not sure of the average, but the money supply has been completely beyond economic growth. And that's why house prices in 1952 were, the average is about 1,900. Now it's 180, 190,000, uh, the average house price. That would be 10,000% inflation. Yeah, it is It is about 9,500%, I think, when we actually looked at the, the figures. So one of the problems that we might run into in this solution may be who decides what is the correct amount of money to create. So for example, in, in the Great Depression, Roosevelt created a whole load of government debt and guaranteed people jobs. Now, who gets to decide what would be the optimum rate of employment, say, in England? There is a theory in, in economics about the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, which basically says, oh, if we have any, any less than 5 or 6% unemployment, we'll end up with too much inflation because there'll be people being able to bargain for mm. more money off their employers. Who gets to decide what that rate of employment would be? You could have the same financial type interests or right-wing interests coming in to attack and take control of that organisation. So this question about who should be responsible for creating money, there's some basic principles that we can think about. I mean, the first thing is they need to have essentially no way of benefiting personally from the creation of money. So with banks, the more they lend, the more interest they receive, the more bonuses they get. Therefore, the more money they create, the better off they do personally. Politicians, probably in the same way as well, they could create money to essentially pay off your voters. So you've got to be careful about these two. I think what we need is a independent transparent, accountable body, and we can have a debate about who that should be and who should be on that sort of committee, whether it should be the Bank of England or whether it needs to be something new that's helped. But the important thing is that we must be able to see what they're doing, what decisions are being taken and why. Any sort of conflicts of interest need to be removed or at the very least declared, and they need to be accountable. And what, what we'd like to suggest is that whatever this body is, whether it's the Monetary Policy Committee or otherwise, they should still be accountable to Parliament in the form of the Treasury Select Committee. So the Treasury Select Committee, it's a group of MPs from all the different parties, including the government and the opposition, and they're responsible for scrutinising the Treasury and the Bank of England. You don't want George Osborne to be able to ring these guys up and say, look, we've got an election coming up in 24 months. I need you to sort of print a load of money to blow up the economy so that it looks like our economic plans have worked. Independent, transparent, but also accountable, and that should be accountable to democracy and to parliament. So how do banks make money if the government is printing up all this money? Well, banks would then, if we reform the system in the way that we're suggesting, banks would do what most people think they do, which is take money from savers and then go and lend it to either businesses or people who actually need it to buy houses and things like that. What we'd like to see is that banks are restructured in such a way so that if they screw up, they can fail, and they can fail without requiring any money from the taxpayer. One of the things that not many people realise about the current system is that, for example, when RBS went bust, an ordinary business in that situation would have been allowed to fail. But 
the government had to rescue RBS because the money in the accounts of all those customers of RBS, it's not real money. It's, it's these liabilities that are created by the banks out of nothing. And therefore, if RBS had failed, all those people would have lost all their money. They'd have had to wait potentially for years while the assets of the bank were liquidated and sold off to raise the funds to repay them. Now, you just can't consider the chaos that would cause if uh, potentially 10 million people suddenly had no means of payment, no money, their salary wasn't getting into their account. So what we'd like to see is a separation basically between the risky lending side of the business and the bit that people want to keep safe, which is money in people's payment uh, transaction accounts, like their current accounts. And if you did that separation, we've got a lot of detail on specifically how you do this uh, with the mechanics and the accounting and the laws. But by doing that, that means if RBS fails again, all those customers that said to RBS, I want my money to be kept safe. So I want it to be kept in one of these accounts where I can access at any time. Those accounts would just be transferred to a healthy bank. And then everybody else, the customers who said to RBS, okay, I understand you're going to do things with my money. I'm willing to take some risk. I'm going to tie this money up for a certain period of time and I want you to go and try and earn some interest or some return for me. Those people would have to wait for the bank to be wound up and liquidated to get some of their money back. It aligns the risk and reward so that only people who are willing to take the risk will actually get the reward as well. So banks in this kind of scenario become like a service operation. You know, they're serving the customer's needs as opposed to pretty much the basic engine of economic decision-making in a society. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And the other thing is as well is we could require that those banks disclose to us how it proposes to use it. I mean, most people don't want to know the details of, you know, exactly which companies will be invested in, who's going to get lent to. But they want to know things like, okay, are you going to put this money into mortgages or into businesses or into high-risk uh, commodity speculation or in, into the military building bombs and things like that? So if we could actually see what the bank was going to do with the money that we were giving to them, it would allow us as society as a whole to have actually some control over where the money goes. Instead of what you have at the moment, you have the banks deciding where all the money goes. So this is the 100% reserve solution. It's commonly attributed to uh, Irving Fisher in the 1930s, a very famous economist, still very well known, who basically put this idea together as a response to the Great Depression and the whole banking failures that you had there. One of the sort of key elements of this was to stabilise the money supply so that money supply wouldn't be dependent on bank lending. Even if all the banks failed, you would still have money available there for the economy to run on. In, in time, it's been advocated by people like uh, Milton Friedman, James Tobin, more recently Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, has had a lot of very good things to say about these kind of proposals. He's kind of limited in what he can say because of his position, but he has been quite outspoken in favour of ideas like this. What we've done is updated it from what there was in the 1930s to take account of the fact that it's all electronic now. And we've actually put this together in draft legislation which would explain how you could implement this and put it through Parliament you know, tomorrow if necessary. So these two types of bank accounts that you've delineated, one is the money sits in the bank and it's safe to the one it's put to a more risky investment and you get a return on it. Do you earn interest on the safe money under this system? No. So the way this would work is if the bank can't lend out your money, it can't earn any sort of return to cover the cost of running the payment system. So what you would get is probably a monthly charge on those accounts. 
And we've actually worked out what it costs in terms of the infrastructure. You're talking probably about five to six pounds a month. Now, obviously, people don't like the idea of paying for something that has been free. But what you have to remember is that on, on one side, you'll be saving phenomenally through not having to bail out the banks, through lower taxes because the newly created money will be going through government spending rather than going into the property bubble, through not having house prices pushed any further out of reach. And this is essentially a cost of having a banking system that works and a monetary system that gives you a stable economy with good jobs and you know good businesses. It's probably worth £60 a year. So where does government borrowing come into this? Well, total government debt at the moment is about a trillion pounds. The total amount of money that has been created by the banking sector is already significantly greater than that. If the state had been creating money in place of the banking sector and making sure that money went into the economy in the best interest of, of the economy and society, that national debt would be significantly lower. There's always an issue with politicians where... Any way that they can find of paying for things without actually having to tax people, they'll take it because it means that you can hide the actual cost of the services that they're providing. So so it doesn't mean that they'll never need to borrow. My personal preference is, is that they wouldn't borrow and they would actually tax for what they're, they're paying for because that, that's the honest way of doing it when people can actually see what they're paying and what they're getting back in return. But it could be much lower with this reform system where the government has the additional revenue of, of newly created money than under the current system. So I don't know if you're a proponent of modern monetary theory. MMT, modern monetary theory, is very much based in the US. There's definitely elements of that which are not applicable to the UK. What's the difference? Well, for example, in the UK, government borrowing doesn't create any new money. All it's doing is redistributing existing money from the pension funds and the investment sector across into current spending. There's other aspects of how the, the Bank of England and the Treasury are functionally separate and certain sort of rules about how they can operate that mean that certain theories from MMT just don't work, um, don't apply to the, the way the system works here. The general thing of government debt is that they can never not pay their government debt because they've got a central bank. I mean, yeah, you could always create the money to pay off your government debt, whether that's entirely responsible. Yeah, so that's my, I think my, my point I'm trying to get to here is that the government debt can never not be paid off because they have the central bank. Yeah. So in effect, when they take on the debt, there is no real need for them to ever pay it back, for example. It adds money, like your solution does for creating money. The government debt works as a way of also injecting money to the economy. I haven't done the detailed research for the US, but in the UK, government debt doesn't really add new money to the, the system. It just redistributes existing money from where it was in the sort of in pension funds to immediate spending. So it's it's a, a limited stimulus. It's not nearly as powerful as people think it is. 
The other aspect then is it is technically impossible for them not to be able to repay the debt because if they need to, they can always create money. But I wouldn't advocate that. Every time a government ever tries to pay back its government debt, when they try and pay the government debt down, it essentially kills the economy. Yeah, and it's like it's... taking money out of the economy to pay off a debt. And that it seems to me like that it's used for other purposes, that the purpose is not really to pay off the debt. It's to say we can't afford certain social benefits. To be honest, I think this is one of the weaknesses of MMT is they don't recognise the actual practical way this works and the way that the people who are making the decisions understand the system. So, I mean, the government, from their point of view, they see it as whatever we spend, we have to get in first and we can get it in through the taxes. But, like, so for example, in, in America, I don't think that at all. Like, Ben Bernanke, in your documentary, he comes out and goes, oh, we just created $12 trillion. Yeah, yeah. Like, so when, when the shit hits the fan, they know how it actually works. Yeah, yeah. And when they want to cut things... They also know, oh, we can just say that other stuff. But the Bank of England and the Treasury, and again, the Fed, the Treasury, the Treasury. are functionally separate. And although they could be merged, the reality is that they're seen as being quite different. But is that not just kind of like a Chinese wall type of thing? Chinese wall type of thing. Chinese wall type of thing. Chinese wall type of thing. Kind of like a Chinese wall. Chinese wall. Chinese wall. I'd like to say a few words on the last segment of the interview, where we talked about Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT for short. When I decided to create this podcast, I wanted to create a place where people can talk about their fields of expertise freely, without inserting my thoughts or opinions too prominently, and to steer away from the confrontational talking head style so prominent in the mainstream media. I suppose there is something inherently more human about a face-to-face live interview as opposed to a Skype interview. It's much easier for things to fall into that space between interview, chat, questioning and argumentation. I think the reforms Ben and Positive Money are putting forward are extremely important and very well thought through and would radically change our society for the better. I do, however, disagree with him on matters of government debt in the UK and agree with the MMT explanation of how this works. While Ben says that the Treasury and the Central Bank are operationally separate, I would put forward the point that the bond market disagrees with this view and sees the two inherently linked at the hip. We can see the difference between the bond rates demanded of those countries who issue their own currency and have high government debt, like the US, the UK and Japan, 
and countries with high government debt in the Eurozone who don't issue their own currencies, like Ireland, Greece and Portugal. These countries are currency users and can only pay down their debt by earning the currency, not by printing. The UK, US and Japan government debt is trading at record lows, even though their government debt is very high, with Japan's hovering over 200% of GDP. The market knows that these governments can always repay their debt, so there is no risk premium charged by the market for taking on their debt. For Ireland, Greece and Portugal, however, bond yields have risen dramatically because nobody wants to lend to a country that might never be able to pay them back. In MMT, government bonds are seen as a way of adding new currency to an economy and taxes can be seen as a way of taking money out of circulation if inflation is heating up. In the positive money solution, I can't see any reason for government debt as money is created using a different mechanism. Indeed, money could be printed up to pay off the existing government debt with the stroke of a computer key. There would be no need for a government ever to go into debt unless it needed to borrow in a foreign currency for some strange reason. The euro is a disaster of a construct, as it essentially operates like the gold standard did in the Great Depression. Governments are at the whims of the bond market. Now they have to earn euros, and in the past they had to earn gold. This gives power over economic decision-making to the financial sector. Indeed, in the Eurozone, only private banks have the power to create money. At least in the UK, the US or Japan, their central bank can create money if they wish. Anyway, I hope my opinions don't come across like I'm trying to get the last word in. I'm not. I'm just trying to clarify some issues that were outstanding at the end of our interview as it drifted off into a discussion about MMT that listeners might have found confusing. I hope to get an authority on modern monetary theory on the show in the near future to discuss these difficult but important topics. If you are interested in reading more on these topics, I would recommend the excellent blog neweconomicperspectives.org where you will find many of the leading thinkers in this heterodox economic theory. I'd like to thank Ben again for a great interview and I recommend people to check out positivemoney.org. You can also check out Ben on the newly released feature-length documentary 97% Owned on YouTube. I have put a link to it in the show notes and on the From Alpha to Omega Facebook group. I hope to have Ben back on the show in the future to discuss the progress of these reforms and his further research into our economic system. On this episode, you heard the team tune Shine On You Crazy Scumbag by Clive Star, Sandy Denny singing Milk and Honey, Zombie by Natalia Kills, and Dysfunctional by the American rapper Tech Nine. You also heard the introduction to an episode of the UK version of The Price is Right featuring Leslie Crowther. A sweet techno beat by the YouTube star Alkaline1240. 
and right now you're listening to The Creator Has a Master Plan by Pharaoh Sanders. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. The Creator has a working plan Peace and happiness for every man The Creator has a master plan. Peace and happiness for every man. The Creator has a master plan. Peace and happiness for every man. The Creator makes but one demand. Peace and happiness through all the land. The Creator makes but one demand. Happiness through all the land. Yeah, 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 yeah.